Amen. You've come to the right place. Amen. Good to see you in the house of the Lord this morning. You can be seated. We're glad to have you in the house of the Lord today. And it's always a joy to begin the worship service and by obeying the Lord and baptizing somebody like God's commanded us to. Amen, church. And so this morning before we baptize, I just want to take a moment to explain what baptism is and what it's not. Uh, first of all, baptism is, is something we're commanded to do as believers in Jesus Christ. And, and if you're here this morning and you never trusted in the Lord Jesus, the first thing you need to do is not get baptized. The first thing you need to do is admit that you've sinned against God and know that you need to trust solely in what Jesus did on the cross to save you from your sin. Because that's what washes away your sin internally by the Holy Spirit. And so when a person's baptized, they're professing openly and publicly what's already happened between them and God inwardly. And so this morning, when, when this person's baptized, uh, what they're saying as they stand in these waters is they're identifying with Jesus. They're saying the old me has died with Jesus on the cross. Spiritually, uh, died with Jesus on the cross. And when that person goes underneath the water, it's a picture of baptism and how Jesus was buried. And so that person is saying before all of you and before God and to themselves, I have died with Christ and the old me is dead and buried. And what happened to Jesus after he was buried? Right three days later, he rose again. And so when the person comes up out of the water, it's a picture of the resurrection of Jesus and how they've been raised. So again, this person is saying, the old me, I'm here to tell you I'm a sinner. I deserve to die for my sin, but I'm trusting in Jesus. And by God's grace, the old me is dead and buried. And praise God, I'm, a, I'm raised with Christ. I'm a new person in Christ. Isn't that a beautiful picture? of what God has truly done on the inside of us and how He's continuing to change us on the outside. And so this morning, Angela Johnson has come to be baptized this morning. Come on down, Angela. Angela's been coming to church here at First Baptist for several months now. And uh, as she's been coming, she's had questions about uh, her relationship with Jesus and about baptism and so forth. And, and uh, a couple of weeks ago, Angela came up to me and said she wanted to talk more about church membership. She went through our church membership class and that uh, she wanted to talk about that, but also we talked about baptism too. And so Angela had communicated to me that uh, before she'd started coming here, you know, she kind of just thought that being a good person, good works, that, that was, you know, enough to get you to heaven. But she communicated that she's come to understand that salvation is by faith alone in Jesus. Amen. And so praise God for that. And it's one thing to understand it, but it's another thing to really trust in that with your heart. And so we praise God that based on what she's saying and, and what we're seeing is that we believe that, that she's been born again and she wants to follow the Lord in believer's baptism. Before I baptize her, I want to ask us to do something quickly because Angela's been coming and, and uh, she's, she's been coming to Sunday school. She's been coming to a small group. She's had people that work with her over at the hospital that's encouraged her, right? And I just want to ask you right now, if you go to Angela's Sunday school class, or if you're in her small group, or if you work with Angela, you've talked to her and encouraged her and invited her to church, would you all just stand real quick and see it uh, to the glory of God? Would you just stand? I know there's several of you. All of you stand up. Small group, Sunday school class members, or some of you out there, you're not standing. Come on, stand on up. And, uh, you know, praise the Lord that there's God places. I know Lori's back here and places so many people in our lives to encourage us and help us along in our walk with Jesus. That's what the church is about. Amen, church. You ladies can be seated. All of you can be seated. All right, Angela. I just want to ask you so everybody can hear from your lips what you've already told the Lord. Angela, do you believe you've sinned against God and deserve His punishment for your sin? 
Do you believe Jesus died on the cross for your sins and rose again? Yes. Are you wanting to turn from your sin, repent, and follow Jesus and trust in Him all the days of your life? Yeah. Amen. All right. Praise the Lord. Angela, I like this. Angela, based on your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people say amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. So we want to encourage you this morning. Again, if you've, if you've never trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ, you need to repent and trust in Him. And we would love the opportunity to talk with you about how God may be at work in your heart. If you've never been baptized as a believer, you need to be. If you were baptized as an infant or, or you were baptized and later understood the Gospel, then you've not yet been biblically baptized. You need to do what God says about that. And so we encourage you, let us talk with you about that. We'd love to do so. Right now, as we continue our service and before we sing, Carol Arnold's going to come on up right now. And she's got some kiddos with her from our Bible drill ministry. And they've got a brief presentation for all the hard work they've been doing. So, Miss Carol, come on up and do that for us.
Good morning again. So for those of you that haven't met him yet, this is my son, Aiden Laswell. And he wanted to sing a special, but not just any special. He loves this song. It's called Bury the Workman. And the words will be up on the screens as he sings. And um, just really pay attention to the words. And uh, I'm really proud of him. Being seven years old is one of his favorite songs to sing. Um, It's all about how no matter what Satan throws at us, and he can kill us, but that doesn't matter because God's word and God's work is still going to go on through all of his people.
Well, boy, I tell you what, between him up there playing up this morning and that uh, singing right there, we've, we've, had, we've had a time, haven't we? Praise the Lord. Amen. I like that song. I hadn't heard it before, but I like it. Well, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be a Bible underneath the chair you're sitting in or close to you. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. You'd stand with me as we honor the reading of God's Word together this morning. Matthew chapter 5, beginning with verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you again so much for the time we've had in Sunday school this morning and new classes that many of the kids have went to and exciting time for them. Thank you for Bible drill trophies and Angela's baptism and um, just singing together, Lord, and, and seeing our young people use their gifts to serve you, Lord. It's been a good morning to be in the house of the Lord. Every morning is. And, Father, we come now and we come to this time of your word being preached. And, Lord, our desire is to understand it. And our desire is to rejoice and exult in it as we see the meaning of it. Lord, thank you for your word. And I pray you teach us great truths about yourself. Do it for your glory and your name's sake. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So the phrase, tie the knot, has been around for centuries. It's been around a long time. And uh, so I was looking up this week the origins of the phrase, tie the knot. Because people say a lot of times, let's, let's, go, let's go tie the knot. Let's go see the preacher. Let's go tie the knot in relation to marriage. And so uh, it's been said that one of the origins of this phrase had to do with couples tying their hands together in a, in a marriage ceremony. They'd actually tie their hands together and during the marriage ceremony to, to represent their unity. Uh, another uh, uh, origin possibly of this phrase that's debated is that in uh, Roman times, when the Roman Empire was going strong, that uh, the, the bride's girdle would be tied in knots and then the groom would untie that girdle to consummate before he consummated the marriage after the wedding. Uh, another interpretation or origin of it is that uh, to tie the knot was sailors and soldiers back back a long time ago uh, when they wanted to propose to their to their uh, sweetheart they would send her a piece of rope and if she took that piece of rope and tied it in a knot and sent it back it said yes she was ready to tie the knot but if she just sent back a piece of rope it wasn't good news for them. All right, so there's other things going on there too. We're not exactly sure what what went with uh, where this phrase "tie the knot" came up to, but uh, certainly there is something that men and women who are married uh, contribute to tying the knot. That's why we say, "Let's go tie the knot." When we look at what the Bible says in Matthew chapter 19, verse six, we're told, "What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate." So, in fact. Uh, it is God who ties the knot. It is God who joins that man and woman in marriage. And you know, 
It goes without saying marriage is, is difficult whenever two sinners, because we're all sinners, right? Whenever sinners are going to say, I do to one another and take those marriage vows, it's not going to be easy because they're not going to be stop being sinners. Even if they're saved, they're not going to stop sinning. They're not going to stop being somewhat selfish. And that's manifested even more as the marriage relationship goes along. So the preeminent question that needs to be asked is uh, marriage is, is difficult and wading through those waters or, uh, can often become just uh, terribly overwhelming. The preeminent question that needs to be asked, knowing that God is the one that actually ties the knot, and God says, let no man separate what God has joined together, dare we untie the knot? If God ties the knot, dare we untie the knot? That seems to be the most preeminent question. You know, not should we get divorced or should we do this or that or whatever other option could be out there, but dare we even consider this? Dare we do this? Dare we untie the knot? So some of the questions we're going to seek to answer this morning on this topic is, is divorce ever permissible? Is if so, on what grounds? Have I been, if I've been divorced, can I ever get remarried? There's a ton of questions. And to try to be comprehensive in one sermon this morning, it's going to be extremely difficult. So I may post my eight pages of sermon notes later on because I can't get it all in one more message this morning. But, but I want to try to be as concise as I can, so I listen carefully. Number one, as we consider the preeminent question, dare we untie the knot? Three, three things to keep in mind. Number one, God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. Now, I want you to think about that statement. God intends for your marriage. Think of the weight of that. To be a picture of eternity. Wow. What grace has been given that God would take sinners who say, I do, and intend to say something through that about something much more than their marriage itself, but something about eternity. God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. So dare we untie the knot? We'll keep this weighty purpose of marriage in mind. God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. Now, this uh, tomorrow happens to be our 14th wedding anniversary. Dan and I are going to get out of town a little bit. And uh, she's my sweet baby pie. That's what I've been calling her before we ever got married. My sweet baby pie. I don't know where I come up with that, but it just fits, you know. Sweet baby pie. And uh, she's a little sneaky. So, I, you know, uh, uh, this, this weekend... I was planning to get away after church this afternoon, go overnight somewhere. I didn't tell her about it. And she was getting closer and closer. So finally Friday she comes up and says, So what are we going to do for our anniversary? And, and she made me do it. She made me tell her. She made me give away the surprise. It reminds me back when, uh, when I proposed to her. I had this plan in mind that I was going to take my guitar. I'd written this song for, for Deanna. And I'd spent a lot of time, it was all saturated in Scripture. And uh, we went back home and to Tennessee, where I grew up, and, and uh, at my parents' house. And, and so the next day, we went up to the Smoky Mountains, drove up there. And I had it all planned out. It was a place in the Smoky Mountains called Cade's Cove. And it was the fall time. And the deer were in rut, Donnie. So it was perfect time, you know. Deer were coming out chasing the does. And here we were out here, got a blanket out, uh, sitting on a blanket. Had brought my, I said, I want to bring my guitar with me. And I took the engagement ring and put it in the guitar case. 
Well, my sneaky sweet baby pie had already figured out what I was up to. She knew what I was going to do. I got down on one knee and said, brought it out. And she said, yes, yes. She said, yes, you know, and, and I sung her the song, but she'd already known that, know that was there uh, to begin with. One of the things that, uh, uh, later on when we did get married, uh, several months later on June the 4th, 2014, or not 14, but four was, Better get that right, because we've got four kids, and the oldest is 12. So, now I'm off track. <laughs> what was I going to say? All right. One of the things that I said on June the 4th, 2004, when she stood in this little Presbyterian church in Mitchell, Indiana, where she had grown up in her town, is I whispered to her, during the marriage ceremony, I leaned over and whispered to her, Deanna, I'm going to try to love you like Christ does the church. And she always remembered that and has mentioned that from time to time, not because she needed to remind me of it, just because you know she reminded me of it. Ephesians chapter 5 tells us about this, Christ and the church and how marriage is to be a picture of Christ and the church. God intends for marriage to be a picture of eternity. We're not going to be married when we go to heaven. Now, I don't mean we won't know our spouse or, or, or anything, but there's no marriage in heaven. The Bible says that, all right? And Mormons believe that, but Mormons are wrong about things even more important than that. So marriage in one sense is temporary, right? And it's, it's a story. John Piper says it's like a parable of permanence. Our marriages are telling a, a story, or it's a picture of something that lasts. And so when you read in Ephesians chapter 5, you read those verses about marriage and about how Christ loves the church and how the husband is the head of the wife and is supposed to love his wife that way. And she, sensing that love and knowing that love, seeks to submit and follow his leadership. And it's a picture of Christ and the church. God intends marriage to be a permanent picture on earth while we live our earthly lives, of an eternal reality in heaven. So let's think about marriage for a moment. If you're married or want to be married, dare we untie the knot? Think about this. God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. So, looking at our text, what's up with Matthew chapter 5, verse 31? Let's look at your Bible. Are you looking at your Bible? Pharisees are asked, or Jesus, and the Pharisees are not mentioned here, but Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, it was also said, so he's, he's mentioning something that's been said, and it's actually from Deuteronomy chapter 24, which we'll turn to in a moment. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. So what's up with that verse? Why has it been said, and why does Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, why does it mention God mentions giving a woman a certificate of divorce. Let's read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. If you want to turn over there, I don't know if it will be up here or not, but Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 is the, the scripture that Jesus has in mind. Yeah, it's up here. Uh, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if, these, she, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he's found some indecency in her, 
And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house and she departs out of his house. All right, so we'll maybe talk about the rest of that later. But So he finds some indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce. So this certificate of divorce has been permitted by God. Yet marriage is to be a picture of an earthly reality or of an eternal reality. It's to be a permanent picture of an eternal heavenly reality so what's up what was the something indecent I see that underlined up there if a man was to find something indecent what is the something indecent here well this speaks to why Jesus brings this up in Matthew chapter 5 and then later in Matthew chapter 19 as well when the Pharisees allude to this as well because there seems to be a taking of what is indecent and just running with it to mean all kinds of things that God never intended that would allow for the permitting of divorce. Well, Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, if you look back at it, what does Jesus say? What does He clarify here? What does Jesus say the indecent is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32 of chapter 5, Matthew. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality. So Jesus is saying that something indecent is sexual immorality. It's not all kinds of stuff. The Pharisees, the people of the day, by the time of Jesus' day, if a wife burnt the toast, that could be a grounds of divorce in their eyes, not in God's, but in their eyes. People were putting away their wives, divorcing their wives for all kinds of reasons. And... They said that something indecent is whatever we determine to be indecent. And Jesus says, let me tell you something. The something indecent is sexual immorality. And that's it. So, with that in mind, there's a, there's a view of divorce and remarriage called the permanence view. And this permanence view uh, says this. It, and it's based on the following reasoning, but it says this, that, and I don't like the title of it because I don't believe this view, and it makes it sound like that if you don't believe this view, then you don't believe marriage should be permanent. But the permanence view says that you get married, you stay married, and there is no biblical grounds for divorce ever, and if you did get divorced, that you should never get remarried, and if you do, you've sinned. That's the permanence view. And it's based on the exception clause here where Jesus says, they say it's not really an exception. They say in Mark and Luke there's no exception clause in similar verses. And they say that Jesus has in mind a Jewish betrothal period. So you've got to know something about Jewish betrothal period background in order to understand this verse. And uh, it's argued that Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. So the reason he mentions a... An exception clause is because he has betrothal period and his Jewish audience would have understood that. It becomes a very complicated argument to sustain. The problem with all of that is Jesus is talking about marriage. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, where this issue comes up again, 
And Jesus goes through all these verses and he says in verse 9 of chapter Matthew, or excuse me, of Matthew 19, verse 9, he says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. Verse 10 says this, the disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples understood Jesus was not talking about a Jewish betrothal period. He was talking about marriage, a man with his wife. Just, just looking at the Scripture itself debunks this view that this is not really talking about marriage, but a Jewish engagement period is what it was, except a heightened engagement period. They also point to Joseph and Mary because Joseph was going to put away his wife or divorce his wife. And Matthew chapter 1 verse 19 is an example that Jesus would have had in mind when in fact Joseph and Mary simply was saying that if she had been unfaithful to him, he, he, could, he could legally and justly put her away. But it, it does not, it's not addressing the issue of marriage there at all. So, and there's another argument about the Greek word porneia, that adultery really doesn't mean adultery, it really means fornication. And so you've got to know something about Greek background, you've got to know something about Jewish betrothal periods, and I'm just not convinced. I, I've wrestled with this, preaching this sermon, because... Uh, a pastor I just mentioned a while ago, John Piper, holds this view of the permanence view that I don't agree to. John Piper does. Uh, Body Bochum preached a very powerful sermon I've listened to about this. And, and uh, Jim Elif wrote a book about this. You don't know him, but I do. I was a good friend. Or I went on a three-day retreat with him and, and, and the co-author of that book when I was in Kansas City. And we actually spent three days studying the, the Sermon on the Mount, these verses. But I remain unconvinced. Um, And then on the other side, those that agree the way I do about it, John MacArthur does, um, R.C. Sproul, Kent Hughes, D.A. Carson, David Platt, just to name a few, would disagree with those men. So this view that I've just espoused that I don't agree with is a, is a minority view, but it's gained increasing popularity among a lot of preachers in a certain traditions. And I disagree with it. But I've wrestled with it because I respect those men so greatly, and so it's caused me to caused me to reexamine where I'm at. But as I've reexamined, I, I don't I've not moved because I don't feel like Scripture teaches that. I think it's an exercise in biblical gymnastics to try to teach that the exception clause is not really an exception clause for marriage. It's not letting the Scripture speak. So, with that said, uh, when I consider that view myself, the way it's affected me is to say. I respect that view and those men. And, and, uh, and so it causes me to be very careful in my counseling and talking to people about marriage and divorce. And, and it's just been, given me a heightened sense of accountability and awareness uh, when I'm engaging in those conversations. Well, God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. And so one point of application I want to make just real quick before I move on is this. Remember what's at stake in your own marriage if you're married right now. Maybe you're, maybe you're contemplating divorce, but untimed the knot. Marriage is a parable of permanence. I do agree with John Piper in the title of his book on that. Your marriage is not ultimately about your happiness. You need to understand that. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 3, uh, Jesus said this in response to the Pharisees' question about uh, or the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? 
And they were thinking of Deuteronomy 24 that we looked at earlier. Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? And Jesus says, no, except for the case of immorality, you can't do it for any cause. So your marriage is not ultimately about your happiness. Your marriage is about eternity. It's about glorifying Jesus. It's about saying something about how much Jesus loves His church. And to say, well, I'm not happy, so I'm going to get out of this thing and not be married anymore is not a biblical grounds for divorce. It's not right. It's sinful. Marriage is not ultimately about your happiness. If it was, boy, we'd really be hurting. You know, keep our eyes on the big picture. Marriage is tough. So when we think about the weightiness of what marriage communicates about Christ and the church, married folks or those that are thinking about getting married, we really got to work really hard at our churches and keep the gospel central, right? Well, number one, then God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. Secondly, God mercifully defines when divorce and remarriage is permissible. God is merciful. And... I've used an illustration the past few weeks about uh, a canyon in relation to marriage that suppose a a forbidden canyon out in the west somewhere that you're not supposed to go to that's off-limits. And the off-limits sign, the do not enter sign is the foundation of marriage. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Don't enter that. Do not get divorced. Stay married. But God, knowing the hardness of hearts, as it says in Matthew chapter 19, regulates divorce, knowing that men and women will go ahead and do that anyway, and mercifully constructs guardrails in that canyon, knowing that people will sneak down there and do it anyway. And He gives some merciful guidelines to protect the spouse, especially the, the, the bride, when the divorce takes place. So in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32, if you look at it, Jesus says this, But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality, what's it do? What's your Bible say? Makes her do what? Makes her commit adultery. So if a man was to divorce his wife except on the case of sexual immorality, he would place that woman, especially in the day of Jesus or especially in the day of Moses, he would place that woman in a desperate place in which she would have to, she may feel as if she had to, become a prostitute. Now think about the culture of that day and how women were looked upon in that day. I'm not saying it was right, but that's the reality of it. She might go into prostitution or she may go ahead and get married again just so her physical needs could be taken care of. He's placing that woman who's been divorced, he's getting away from on unbiblical grounds, he's he's doing something that's going to put her in a very difficult situation maybe even life-threatening situations. So Jesus recognizes that. God's being merciful here, though. And so He gives this exception clause. And so the indecency spoken of in Deuteronomy 24, at the very least, has to do with sexual immorality. So there's actually two grounds for uh, divorce, biblical divorce and remarriage. Ground number one is unrepentant sexual sin. Unrepentant sexual sin. So look at uh, the verse again here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 32 says, makes her commit adultery. Now one view that we've already talked about this morning, the Greek word that's used there is porneia. And one view says, well, that's not talking about adultery between a husband and wife. It's talking about sex outside of marriage between a man who's been engaged to his, uh, you know, 
his fiance, or that one of them's had sex outside of marriage. But in fact, if you look at Scripture, this word is used in the context of adultery and all kinds of sexual sins. So notice how I've worded this carefully. Unrepentant sexual sin. Unrepentant sexual sin. This includes, D.A. Carson says, all kinds of sexual sin. So I think pornography is included in that. Um, Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, addresses this as well. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9 says this. I just read it a while ago. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So there's a grounds for divorce here. It's clear. Can this person be remarried? I think Matthew chapter 19, verse 9 makes it explicitly clear that they can be remarried. So, is anybody innocent in a marriage? No. <laughs> Come on! Since the fall of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, there's not a, a married person on the face of this earth who's not contributed in some sinful way to an unhealthy marriage. None of us have a perfect... Anybody got a perfect marriage? Want to raise your hand this morning? So, there's contributions on both parts. There's no truly innocent party or, or person here, truly. Yet it's clear, not only from our human experience, but also just from this text that we're looking at, that sometimes one spouse, and in this case it would have been the wife, who bears the brunt of the guilt for the end of the marriage. If she commits adultery, then it's lawful to divorce her is what he says here. So sometimes one person can bear the brunt, and sometimes it can be the wife. Sure, the husband may have contributed. He may have, if he's abused her or, or deserted her or abandoned her in some way, he may be guilty of what we see in 1 Corinthians 7. He's guilty, and, and so both are guilty in that sense. But it's also possible that, like it tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about qualifications for elders and pastors, that this husband is sought to be a one-woman kind of man. He's sought to be faithful to his bride. And his bride has just turned her back and said, I've had enough and I'm out of here. And, I don't. and he's, he's, he's not been perfect, but he's not a cause for her adultery. And I say all this to say, when I use now the phrases the guilty party and the innocent party, nobody's truly innocent or guilty. We understand that. But sometimes one person's sinful, selfish desires are, clear, are clearly the reason a marriage has dissolved. So let me say this about divorce and remarriage very quickly because I'll get bogged down and we'll be here forever. Number one, the guilty party, the divorced person who has committed adultery in the marriage, is not permitted to, to remarry. Now, Jesus is clear about that. The guilty party, and the guilty party is the person who has committed adultery in the marriage, in that previous marriage, is never permitted to remarry. That's just what the Bible says. The innocent party, nobody's truly innocent, I know, but the innocent party, the person that did not commit adultery, the divorced person whose spouse committed adultery, is free to remarry. Some would say, well, they're, 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 they're okay to get divorced, but they can't remarry. I disagree. I think Matthew 19, verse 9 shows that. The, the innocent party is free to remarry when the grounds have been biblical. 
So there's a second ground for divorce and remarriage. Jesus had in mind this particular context right here. But there's a second ground for divorce and remarriage, and that's the abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Only one grounds for believers, two believers that are married, and that's adultery. But if, a spouse, but if somebody's married to an unbeliever and that person abandons them, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15 tells us this. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So let me set this up really quick. And you go back home and study these passages of Scripture if you want to. Jesus said, or Paul says earlier in that verse of Scripture, he says, The Lord says uh, this about marriage. He said, In other words, Paul was saying Jesus said this about marriage. And he has in mind Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 and the passage in Mark and Luke. And then he says, but I, and I say to you, not the Lord. So in other words, what he's saying is Jesus, Jesus wasn't seeking to be comprehensive in relation to the grounds for divorce in Matthew chapter 5. So, he said, so he's not uh, saying Jesus was wrong. He's saying Jesus wasn't seeking to be comprehensive. So let me give you another grounds for divorce. If someone is, has married someone that's an unbeliever, let's say two people get married, one of them gets saved later on. Paul says in that passage of Scripture, you're not to divorce your spouse just because they're not a believer. You just got saved. You stay with them. Now, I've actually heard some people say, you should divorce that person. Or, or if you got remarried, you should divorce that person and go back to your other spouse. That is, that's crazy. If the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. So, so if the unbeliever is married to this uh, this. This believer is married to this unbeliever. This, let's say this woman who's, who got saved, came to know Christ. She's married to her husband who's not a Christian. She's supposed to stay with him. She's supposed to love him. She's supposed to pray for him. Man, we got testimonies in here this morning. Well, that's what happened. And by God's grace, your faithfulness, God uses a means of grace to save your husband or to, or to save your wife. And possibly your children as well. The Scripture says there it has a sanctifying effect in the home. Your presence and staying in that marriage doesn't, is not guaranteed to save them, but it's going to uh, keep them in a place where they're exposed to the gospel in your life. So stay married to the person for the sake of your unbelieving spouse and for your children who may not yet be saved. But if the unbelieving partner separates, if the unbeliever is out of there, they abandon you, they desert you, then let them go. In such cases, you're not, under, you're not under bondage, you're not enslaved. God's called you to be at peace. So if this, so, and it doesn't define it. The problem here is it doesn't define what abandonment is or desertion or to leave. It could mean to, be to, to physically leave the home and not come back. It at least mean that. There's some un... And taking the view that I hold, the reason some people I think like the permanence view, just if you get, if you get married, uh, stay married, never get divorced. If you get divorced, you can never get remarried, and it's sin if you do get divorced. I don't agree with that. I think the reason some people may do that is because it's just easier. Nope, nope, nope. These passages present some uncomfortable gray areas for us because what it, what it leads to is this. Is it possible for somebody to physically stay in the home yet have abandoned their family? That's a question that comes up when you interpret these verses this way. What about abuse? We'll look at it in a second. 
What about emotional abuse? Is that, is that what he would have had in mind? I mean, you can really begin to muddy the waters here and just about justify anything, be right back to square one, justifying any reason to be divorced, saying, well, they abandoned me in some way. They abandoned me by not cooking the way I wanted to. You know, that's a really silly reason or whatever, right? But people could really just stretch this as far as they wanted to. And so we have to work through these things carefully and biblically with church pastors, elders, Christian friends looking at the Word of God. What about abuse? And I need to pause here for a moment and address this because we are in the you know, hashtag Me Too climate right now, if you know what I'm talking about, about women who've been sexually harassed or abused and so forth. And a lot of people got themselves in trouble, including Paige Patterson, the Southern Baptist Seminary president down in southwestern Texas for statements he made a while back, even telling one student on campus at Southeastern Seminary uh, not to report something to the police, I think, or something like that, or um, and stay married to her husband, which I think would have been good counsel, but, but to not report it to the police and not, I don't think, was wise counsel. So I think I need to stop and camp here just for a moment to be clear. When it says abandonment here, it doesn't say abuse. You know, I'm not going to make the, try to make the Scripture say what it doesn't say. So let me say this. Could it mean that somebody's in the home, they've not left, they're an unbeliever, but they're beating the tar out of you or they're sexually abusing your children? Is that grounds for biblical divorce? Have they abandoned you at that point? I mean, my heart says, it wants to say, yeah. And maybe that's true. But let me say this at the very least. If a wife or a husband, for that matter, is being physically abused by their spouse, I said a wife or a husband, or if their children are being abused or in danger of being abused, it is absolutely crucial that at the very least that believing husband or believing wife must physically remove himself or herself as well as their children away from that situation. At the very least, get away. Get out of the house. Church, this is where the church steps in. Find a church member and say, I need a place to stay for a while. There's family shelters that exist. People can be referred to as well if necessary. Friends, move back in with parents. Do what's necessary. And in most cases, you're going to need to report that to the police and file for some type of you know, restraining order. I've heard of pastors counseling not to do that. And there may be some cases where the abuse is not quite as severe as what maybe the bride or the husband, for that matter, is describing. Okay? You not be too hasty, but... We need to keep in mind, I'd rather be cautious than, than not. So you can do those things. And it's not unbiblical to take those steps, those measures, folks. It's not. It's probably even irresponsible not to do so. And all of that can be done without filing for divorce. It can be. Are there legal situations in which somebody who's being abused should go ahead and file for divorce because of custody issues and being, their children being exposed to that person? Possibly. I don't know. That's beyond my you know, pay grade. I, just, I think we need to be careful to cast judgment on people who are in those places and minister to them as a church family. Amen? Another gray area might be, well, I had a lady at a church I pastored who was struggling with this, that her husband professed to be a believer, but he had abandoned her and done all kinds of things to her. 
But he said he's a Christian. And this talks about an unbelieving spouse. And my simple response to her was this. Well, it, he may say he's a Christian, but he's, his, his actions deny that. So I'm, I'm not telling you to get divorced. I, I, I never counseled, to my knowledge, anyone to ever get divorced. But what I said to her is, it seems to me he's not a believer. I, I just can't imagine somebody being a believer and beating a tar of their wife. What about somebody that's an unbeliever before they got divorced? Scripture doesn't address that. First thing I would say to somebody like that is, well, first thing you need to do if you're not married already and the spouse is unmarried that you divorced is you need to try to get remarried to them, reconcile with them. But if not, we need to sit down and talk about it case by case. Well, thirdly and finally, briefly, last point. Number one, I said God intends for your marriage to be a picture of eternity. Number two, God mercifully defines when divorce and remarriage is permissible. Number three, God never commands divorce. So we've talked about biblical grounds for divorce. Understand, God never commands that. If adultery is taking place, that don't mean you must get divorced. And if they're repentant, they've committed adultery, and they are, you discern, genuinely repentant, and that's hard, that discern, you know, what's that mean? That's gray, ain't it? You know, I don't think you should divorce them if they're repentant, truly repentant. Maybe you need to get away from them for a while and see if there's fruit for repentance. But God never commands divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 8 says this, he said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. So I'd agree with D.A. Carson here. Divorce is never to be thought of as a God-ordained, morally neutral option, as evidence, of, uh, but as evidence of sin, of hardness of heart. God's not saying, get divorced if this happens. He's permitting it, but it's not what He intends and not what He wants. God never commands divorce. So here's some points of application. It's not an easy message. And I prayed and I thought, how can I lighten this? And I can't. I don't know that it's supposed to be. Number one, if you are unmarried, I think a lesson for this is be biblical and wise about who you court or date, however you refer to that. We're not to be unequally yoked together. Just like we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 16. You don't know if your presence in the home as a believing spouse to an unbelieving spouse, you don't have any guarantee that they're going to be saved. Do not date or court someone who is a, not a Christian. And if they say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you have to drag them to church, or they can't tell you the last time they've been to church, or the last time they read the Bible, there's a good chance that despite the fact that they say that they're a Christian, they're not a Christian. Don't date them. Don't court them. Be nice to them. Pray for them. Seek to influence them. But don't go down that road. I believe it's sin to do so. I believe Scripture makes it, says it's sin to do so. Don't date or court someone that's not a Christian. And I know there's testimonies out there where, where people have done that. They went in and they ended up getting married and the person got saved. And it's a wonderful, gracious, but you're not guaranteed that. So don't do it. Don't do it. Number two, as we're on mission, 
you know, everywhere, every day. Share your convictions about divorce, remarriage with humility and wisdom to those struggling with divorce. So let's say you're at work or you've got a family member and they're, they're struggling with their marriage and maybe, maybe the topic of staying in this thing is going to work, you know, this is going to work out or not. And be really careful how you talk about this. Why does it seem perhaps, and maybe in this sermon, that I've worked hard trying to show the biblical grounds for divorce? Maybe that's how it comes across. Well, that's not really my goal, but the really it's because we don't want to lay a yoke or a burden on somebody that Scripture does not. If uh, it would be sinful for me to stand and preach or counsel someone or talk to a friend and um, in such a way this morning or whatever that's struggling in their marriage to lead them to sin by getting divorced or getting married again when they shouldn't based on what I've said if I was wrong in my interpretation. It would, that would be a horrible thing. So I, I need to feel, you need to feel the weight of James 3, 1 that those who, who are teachers, you know, they incur a stricter judgment. So be very careful. And yet, beloved, it would be equally sinful to teach, preach, or counsel someone in such a way to lead them to have a, to bear a burden that God's Word really doesn't teach. And to really be more pharisaical, that, that would be just as sinful. So all I can do is encourage you to do this. Be like the Bereans in Acts 17.1. Study the Scriptures Show yourself more noble than Thessalonians. Study the Scriptures. See whether or not what Paul said was true. And when you develop convictions about this issue, biblical convictions, be very careful how you relay those to someone. You don't want to be responsible for counseling them to get divorced or remarried, so be careful, especially if it's on unbiblical grounds, right? You also don't want to put a weight upon them because of your convictions that God never intended. Be incredibly careful about how you talk to people about these issues. And, and humble. Be humble. Number three, if you've been remarried, okay, recognize it's a hard message to hear because we've got a lot of people that have been remarried in our church family. If you've, if you've been remarried on unbiblical grounds, and you know it, just hearing this message, you know you shouldn't have, you shouldn't have gotten married again. This is what you need to do. Ask and receive God's forgiveness and remain faithful to your current spouse. This is what I'd say to somebody who's sitting here this morning and, and you know you got remarried and really you shouldn't have based on what Scripture says. Your, your other divorce was unbiblical or the person you married had an unbiblical divorce. I would say to you this this morning, if you're just realizing this especially for the first time or maybe you've suppressed it, rather than get uptight and defensive and, and offended, that you would do this. Humble yourself before the Word of God and recognize it. Get with your spouse, especially if you're married, if you're the husband. After church today, this afternoon, take your sweet baby pie by the hand and say, sweetheart, you know, maybe we've never really talked about this and tried to ignore the fact, but what we did was wrong. We shouldn't have got married again. We shouldn't have married each other. I can't imagine us not being married. But based on what Scripture says, we shouldn't have. 
can we just pause right now and ask God to forgive us? Because we've never really done that before. And to just pray and say, God, we confess. Thank you. And then to receive us. Thank you for your forgiveness. The blood of Jesus Christ forgives us and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And then be faithful to your spouse. Let that current marriage be a reflection of the relationship Christ has with the church. Don't divorce them. Don't divorce each other. You know, Don't use this as an excuse to divorce each other. Be faithful. Reflect the gospel in that marriage you currently enjoy. And number four, and finally, at all times and all situations, rely upon the faithfulness of Christ to His church. Amen? Jesus begins this passage of Scripture, uh, of the Sermon on the Mount going through, but I say to you and so forth, He says uh, in verse 17, don't think I've come to uh, uh, abolish the law of the prophets. I came to fulfill the law of the prophets. And praise God that Jesus, in relation to marriage, perfectly fulfills it in His Covenant love, undying love, faithful love for His church. When did Jesus die for us? Romans 5, I was reading in my devotional time this morning. While we were yet sinners, unmarried to Him, apart from Him, Christ died for us. The Bible says we were enemies. We were Ephesians, children of wrath. Ephesians chapter 2, we were dead in our sin. Yet, God chose us before all of that, before He ever created the world, to, for Christ to die for us and marry us. We become His, His, His bride that He would present to the Father unblemished. And He will never divorce His bride. He fulfills the law perfectly. Great is thy faithfulness. So, no matter what situation you may find yourselves in, single, divorced, married, unmarried, widowed, at all times and all situations, rely on the faithfulness of Christ to His church. Put your weight, rely means put your weight and trust upon what Jesus has done for His church and not on anything else, not on your past or whatever. Put your trust in Jesus and receive what He's done for you in Christ. Let's pray together this morning.